Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Alex Triantis is an extremely accomplished academic leader, currently serving in his 10th year as a dean, and who will soon be chairing the board at AACSB. From 2013 to 2019, Alex was dean of the Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. In August of 2019, he became only the third dean of the Carey School of Business at Johns Hopkins University. In this podcast, we'll hear from Alex as to how he approached leading this young emerging business school embedded within a very storied and extremely well-respected university. At the time, Carey was only 11 years old when he arrived. We'll hear how Alex chose to leverage strengths within Hopkins, which in turn has led to a strong focus on interdisciplinary work and numerous dual degree programs. Along the way, he points out some of the advantages and disadvantages this brings in contrast to conventional business schools and provides advice on anticipating unintended consequences. We're here today with Alex Triantis, the Dean of the Carey Business School at Johns Hopkins University. And Alex, you know, you have a, a multidisciplinary and varied background, having been educated at University of Toronto, a couple of degrees in industrial engineering from my alma mater, Stanford, where you were receiving and, and doing much more rigorous intake and, and scholarship, a really a wonderful academic career early on in finance at Wisconsin, then to, to Maryland, where you chaired finance and ultimately were the dean from 2013 to 2019. And now at a dean at a at a very different uh, institution at uh, Cary Business School. Frankly, the history of Cary Business School as the youngest school at Johns Hopkins in a university that's historically uh, a medical and health sciences powerhouse that had uh, for some time a somewhat siloed reputation and now really moving towards one university. So it'd be Terrific if you might uh, start out and just answer the question about what it's like to step into um, th this role and leadership role at a university such as this in a, in a school with the kind of fascinating and uh, impressive early growth. Yeah, thanks, Ken, and great to be with you and Jim on, on this uh, podcast. So what, what's interesting, um, you, you filled in a lot of uh, the history, but I'll mention that at the outset, Johns Hopkins was offered an opportunity to start a business school uh, many years before it actually did, and, and, and it didn't happen. And I think it might have been um, sort of this question of, you know, do, do, does every university have to have a business school? Does the world need another business school? And what is really exciting for me and I think unique about the Cary Business School is we're not just uh, trying to replicate what every other business school is doing. We're trying to come up with with a different kind of business school in, in at least some ways. Uh, we offer obviously uh, traditional degrees like the MA and the MS, but at the same time, we're also doing, uh, really leaning into the uh, interdisciplinarity, which I think a lot of schools are sort of moving in that direction as well. Uh, but I feel that because we are a relatively new business school, 
as we always say, the, the America's oldest research institution, uh, Johns Hopkins, um, we're, we're able to do things in a, in a different way. And, and I, I can I'd break that down and then I'd turn it back to you all. But I, I'd say it, it's really on two dimensions. On the programmatic side, where we have a lot of dual degrees, and I'm happy to talk about sort of our philosophy around that. And then also on, on the research side, where we, um, we really embrace, I'd say in, incentivize, and, and maybe I should also say not penalize our, our, our faculty for doing interdisciplinary work. And the university is hugely committed uh, to providing resources and incentives to making that happen as well. What have you been able to do from a partnership standpoint with the medical enterprise in terms of degrees and, and that kind of thing? Because it is such a powerhouse that it just would seem to me that there's so much opportunity there. What have you guys been able to do there? We have several dual degrees in, in place. Uh, we, we actually don't have many MDs, students that are currently getting their MD. We get a lot of doctors who, who uh, have already uh, graduated, in particular in our, in our online uh, MBA program, uh, which is really quite large now. But we do have a lot of dual degree activity together with the School of Public Health, which is quite an enterprise here at Hopkins, as well as the School of Nursing. So we have uh, with the School of Nursing, MSN, a Master's of Nursing, as well as DMP, which is the Doctor of Nursing Practice, which has become a, a pretty big deal. Uh, so we have a lot of students. We probably bring in about 25 students in dual degree programs every year with School of Public Health, another 20, 25. And so that's sort of on, on the dual degree side. But what's really exciting is, I think, also what we're doing on the research side. So we've started just three years ago, the Hopkins Business of Health Initiative. And we've got about 100 faculty from uh, the three, what we call sort of the three health schools uh, that are, that are uh, all, all co-located, public health, nursing, and medicine, together with the Cary Business School. And they get together on, on a regular basis to work on joint research on impact. And uh, we're really trying to grow the impact in the policy arena as well. We're going to get a new uh, home uh, shortly in Washington, D.C., just steps from the Capitol. We're really looking forward to kind of using that positioning as well physically to, to really uh, make a big splash in terms of um, things involving healthcare policy. Sort of dropping back to the dual degrees, which is fascinating in that you really have been a real market leader, if you will, in that uh, regard. I would guess our listeners could be interested in unpacking sort of how have you done it? What's, what's the life cycle of establishing dual degrees? What sort of engagement and collaboration has it taken? Sort of how have, how have you been able to, to do that? Yeah, I think central to that is uh, the the philosophy, I'd say the unstated philosophy of let's just make the pie bigger here and let's not uh, dicker around sort of who's getting paid what for a number of credits. And and I've seen and talked to so many um, folks who, uh, deans who have just, you know, been banging their heads and and not not able to close dual degree programs because everybody wants to maximize their share. And I think if you take that approach, um, it does not succeed. And, and not only at the beginning, but just even later, because all the circumstances change in terms of, you know, tuition and marketing dollars and all sorts of things. So I think you have to go into it with the mentality that 
we're each going to pick up students that we would have never got if uh, not for having this dual degree. And I've found that that um, has worked really well with us. We have dual degrees with six of six other schools at Hopkins, ranging from engineering to School of Advanced International Studies and so on. And, and in each case, I would I point to finding opportunities that are market driven, where, where there may be gaps in offerings at other schools, and then trying to be flexible because it, it's not easy for students to manage dual degrees. So being flexible in terms of, of how you offer it and, and, and ability to shift electives around and things like that, I think is, is super important as well. And what about joint appointments? Has that contributed to sort of the connective tissue? Absolutely. So uh, I'd say I'd, I'd point to a few things that the university has done, which I think are, are critical and in really incentivizing and, and allowing for interdisciplinary research. We have Bloomberg Distinguished Professors who are very senior faculty. There's 50. We're moving up to 100 soon who have to have a leg in two different schools. Uh, so they're with Cary and Public Health, Cary and Engineering and so on. They're not only well-known researchers, but they're expected also to be really leaders and, and help you know build up teams uh, behind them. Um, there are very significant awards that are given by the university that you have to have researchers in different uh, schools that, that, that get those. I think probably um, even more important is, is leadership of president and provost who are truly, truly committed to this. I mean, I think everybody talks the game of interdisciplinarity, but you know, really putting money behind it. Um, in, in our case, uh, recently, a vice provost for interdisciplinary initiatives, getting, you know, helping to get the schools to work together. All of that's really important. The, the other part is, I'd say, maybe a little bit more what we've done at the business school. We do not um, have an A-list of publications, which most uh, business uh, schools do. Focus on, you know, UT Dallas and, and Financial Times and so on. If our faculty want to uh, publish in New England Journal of Medicine or Science or whatever, you know, God bless them. And um, we we take that seriously. We the letter writers are also potentially people who have sort of that broad scope, and and we want to make sure that they are that our faculty are considered to be experts in particular areas, but not as measured just by their their A level publications. So that requires some sort of open thinking that uh, sometimes is difficult, in particular if you have a tradition. And again, I think that's one of the advantages of having a newer school is that you can kind of build it in, in, a, in a newer fashion. I couldn't commend you more for that one. I think that is wonderful to hear. I think it's terrific. What failures have you had when you've gone through these, and many times you're going to throw a bunch of these dual degree programs up there, something just doesn't work. It doesn't it doesn't get the students' attention. It doesn't get the faculty attention. Have you had any that just didn't work? I mean, we're we in academia are known for not cutting the dead wood, but we carry it along for a while. It's a it's a good point. I, I'd say there there's one program that was established before I, I started at at Cary, and it's no longer with us. And and it was across I think three or four different schools. Um, it was more of a certificate program together with medicine and public health and maybe even nursing as well. Try not to overcomplicate things, I guess would be one lesson there. And then and then the other is as much market research as, as you might do ahead of time, 
you, you build it and, and they may not come or it may the numbers may be so low that it just becomes a little bit infeasible from an operational uh, standpoint. And so there, there have been, I think, some of those who that may have one point been a, a bigger deal. And actually, one example I'll give you is we have a, a unique program together with a school of fine arts in Maryland called uh, the Maryland um, uh, Institute College of Art. And it's um, it's it has a great name. It's called the Mamba uh, program. It's a master's of arts in uh, design leadership together with our MBA. And, and the, the students of that program are incredible. It's very focused on, on human-centered de- design. But it it has been uh, sort of in person at MICA and then sort of in a more flex MBA format. And so the formats didn't match. And so we, we actually just decided, okay, let's just take a very fresh approach on this and lean into uh, the online market and see if we can redesign this in a way that's gonna be easier for the students, uh, easier for the schools to work together and so on. So in some cases, I think you, you just have to close things down and in other cases, you, you take another stab at it. You may not get it right the first time around. Alex, you mentioned uh, impact earlier, probably hard to measure and probably varies from you know division to division, discipline to discipline, but talk with us some about sort of how you built impact into the idea of uh, research and scholarship? It's a great question. And, and there's no sort of simple way to, to measure impact and, and impact on what, right? So it could be impact, obviously, on the on academic scholarship. It could be, um, you know, impact more generally on, on society. Obviously, we look at a lot of, you know, when we're looking at promotion cases, we we look a lot at, at, at citations and, and other impact in terms of, you know, our, our faculty at other schools using your research? Is it is it having um, an impact in, in academic circles? But, but we also are increasingly focused on impact in policy circles, in, um, you know, working on, on initiatives that are garnering attention from other, other entities and being featured uh, more in sort of the public sphere and not just in, in the academic sphere. You know, it's it's hard to, to to sort of measure that in in a strict sort of quantitative metric way, but you kind of get the sense of somebody who really is excited about their scholarship and 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 willing to maybe invest a little bit of time doing something that is a little bit less academic, but but gets them to to have that impact on whatever their field is. So I, I think that's evolving, and as you know, Ken, um, there's more and more focus on societal impact through um, through AACSB and 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 through the curriculum uh, the, the reviews that happen every five years and I think I think that's a good thing we we it forces us to go back and say okay really what what have we achieved from an impact perspective how's your team are they are they really gelled into the concept of being creative with these dual degrees and thinking more about it was it a pretty easy thing to get buy-in from the Kerry team? Sometimes they just don't want to do these types of things because it just adds workload or whatever. How do you, how do you look at that? Yeah, it's a it's a good point, Jim, because we often do get into this uh, sort of uh, complexity debate and try to streamline and too many different programs and too much operationally. I, I think at the end of the day, you you've got to um, you, you have to give it a little bit of an ROI scrub and say, look, you know, yeah, th- this is a little bit more work and, and and maybe we need an additional headcount for somebody to 
to track some of these things and deal with with students that have maybe unique issues and need different advisors. But if if we're adding 10, 20, whatever students by by virtue of doing this, and also a richness of, of what we get in the classroom, having people from different backgrounds, then I think the case is relatively easy to make. You know, I, I think in general, our, our um, faculty and staff are are open to being creative. Again, one of the advantages of being at a, at a fairly young school where people came at a time where, you know, there might not have been as established of a faculty and reputation as other schools. And, and they're a little bit uh, more entrepreneurial in terms of how they think, and they're willing to, to go with the ride. Has it been an advantage, and are, are there continuing opportunities related to having one faculty without departments? Because historically, that's been somewhat differentiating about care. Yeah, that's right. Everybody designates sort of a, a primary area, and, and they can designate a secondary area as well. So you know, these are are mostly, you know, functional areas that you would see at any other school that gives um, sort of a, an affinity group, if you like, when we do searches, obviously, those are the individuals that uh, will have the, the stronger voice in, in hiring people within that area. But it it, it does allow, um, we have seminars, recruiting seminars, we get people from different areas attending, and it's not just sort of the finance people or uh, the management people listening in to a discussion. We we have a uh, pretty active series where our faculty um, will present to all the faculty about, you know, short little TED Talks, if you like, about their research. And we, we've we even started doing that with our staff as well so that our staff can recognize the kinds of research that our faculty are, are doing. So, you know, I think that that helps a lot. I think also when you've got um, our, our promotion tenure process, uh, actually involves all of our faculty at the outset evaluating case, but then it goes to an academic board that is not just carry individuals, but carry faculty, but also some from other uh, divisions at Hopkins, which again um, lends a bit of a, a new lens and a more interdisciplinary approach to, to evaluating the cases. What kind of advice would you give a dean who really doesn't have? this basket of dual degrees as they're starting out and trying to figure out, you know, where do I go? What's the first one I do? How do I look at it? You know, what, what would you tell them and what pitfalls would you tell them to watch out for as well? So uh, certainly, obviously uh, just a quick benchmarking to see what's out there, what's, what's common. But I think, you know, part of it also is you, you don't want to be swimming um, too hard upstream. So part of this depends on, on the, the the will of the coalition of the willing. And um, so I'd say I would start with that and talking to the deans of the other schools and and see if they um if, if they are dismissive or 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 delighted. Uh, right. And and so you know you got to think a little bit about um how easy it is going to be to actually execute on these. But you know the market research is important in understanding sort of areas in which uh, there seems to be more more interest. The, the other is um, is the particular strengths of the school. So, uh, you know, if you're at a school that's really heavy sort of engineering technology focused, then that's probably where you want to lean into. We, we started, I think, more with health related programs and biotechnology and so on, but but have expanded from there as well. So, yeah, I, you know, the, the pitfalls will be that that one will sort of hit a, uh, a, a few walls that uh, they'll only want to bang their head against them so many times and then kind of move on to the next thing. 
I would imagine, you know, you want to continue also the kind of entrepreneurial culture that you've inherited and helped to uh, reinforce. And, and by that, failing fast forward is sort of a, a rule of thumb. That's true. Exactly. And uh, again, some of these are easier. To, I, I think there's a bit of a momentum once you structure a, a plan for how to do these kind of uh, dual programs, then it's easier to, to sort of go with a um, with a paradigm that, that, that works. But uh, I agree with you. It's, uh, you know, we've actually been toying around with going to um, the School of Engineering and saying, well, instead of sort of picking one like by a master's in biomedical engineering together with with our MBA or with one of our MS degrees, why don't we come up with with a template that works with any of their master's degrees, and then do it in a way that that can be standardized, so it won't be a complete nightmare, uh, but will give students more of a flexibility in terms of how they piece together uh, the various courses. How do you compare? dealing in a private institution versus dealing in a public institution? What have been your experiences there that you could share? Um, I'd say, first of all, that there's probably a lot more commonalities uh, than differences. But I, I do think that you know, all institutions are going to try to some extent to have uh, centralized uh, commonalities. Uh, so it's interesting that Hopkins actually, I think historically, has been quite a quite a decentralized institution. You know, one one recognizes that. Um, you know, I'll give you a specific example. Right during COVID, obviously, you can't have every school going off and do, doing whatever they want. Right, and then also um, now with with sort of the flexible work arrangements. If we decide that, you know, we want, we're going to have our staff only come back X days and other schools Y days and they, and then Y is greater than X and they decide now I'm going to go over to, you know, to carry because they're much more flexible. Well, the university doesn't want that. So what, what's interesting, I think, is over time, probably, um, you know, the, that standardization, which may or may not reflect uh, sort of state um, imposed rules, it just may be sort of the institution feels like it has to put uh, particular uh, parameters in place. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, th I think you have more latitude, right? And I, I've been in an institution in particular during financial crises that, you know, had had furloughs that were mandated by, uh, by the state. And then you're just kind of stuck with that regardless of where you may be as a school or, or as a university, you kind of have to go along with that, whereas a private institution gives you a little bit more flexibility there. At Johns Hopkins, you know, the interdisciplinarity and the, the way that you have been able to do things around uh, dual degrees and even research sort of across uh, different lines may or may not impact ultimately rankings be interesting to hear sort of how you think about that in terms of just the ethos that is developed as one university and how that may impact rankings now that Cary is a accredited uh, business school. Yeah, we we are accredited. Uh, we we have chosen uh, not to enter the rankings, and um, I must say when I when I interact with uh, many of my dean colleagues, they're they're quite envious of that of that flexibility that comes a along with that. And it's quite interesting these days, as um, certainly in law and medicine, 
many many schools have have pulled out of the rankings. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see sort of how how that evolves on, on the business school side. But I, I think sort of the the premise of your question is the fewer constraints that you face, the more you've got a latitude to to experiment and 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 to try uh, new things. And I, I think the interdisciplinarity is something that uh, perhaps. Uh, many schools have wanted to do for a long time. I, I think, and you both know that historically, uh, business schools uh, were were really uh, thriving in many ways that um, that they kept separate as a result of that. And 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 maybe there was there was not the best of uh, of love between um, other entities on campus and, and business schools. And I, I think we're at a different spot now where business schools need their. their um, their colleagues in other divisions, and, and vice versa as well. And I think everybody's seeing sort of the benefit of that. And if you've got a, uh, if you don't have the constraints of thinking about, you know, how is this going to impact? Like, you know, we have students from a master's of public health. How would that impact our career outcomes, right? Um, you know, given where they may want to go. I mean, I, I think we we obviously report our career outcome statistics. We, we're transparent about everything, but we're not. I guess is obsessed maybe as as we would be if we were thinking more about the, the rankings. So uh, it, it's nice to have a little bit of that that flexibility. I think it's great. I mean, I just listen to that freedom. And I go, how come I never had that freedom? It's so nice. And you know, you look at the you look at the medical schools and the and the law schools today, and and they really are rebelling against this. And my gut feel is the business schools will fall in line there as well at some point because so many of those rankings, the metrics are so useless. It's just a way to sell magazines. So I applaud you guys for not jumping into that pool. That's just not one you want to be in. And it's great because it really does give you the freedom of thought, which is terrific. Well, Alex, it's been a fascinating conversation. We really uh, appreciate your joining us here today. Um, We've learned a lot and you've shared a lot. Thank you so much. Been great. Really, really appreciate the time. It's it's been great. It's wonderful to see you, and wonderful to see you with a big smile and happy with what you're doing. It's great. Keep it up. Thank you. Well, Jim, that was great conversation. What were, what were your thoughts? Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think that the focus on this dual degree on interdisciplinary degrees, where they've also looked at the um, the issues that take place at most institutions, for example, publications, and going out of, really out of the norm in terms of what are the publications that they're going to reward when it comes to promotion. I think that really is a just a very smart move, and you've got buy-in from so many people on this. They've got momentum that's just not going to be not going to be lost. I think it's it's really a a great step going the right direction for a school that's really going the right way. I like hearing it. Yeah, he's a he's a great spokesman for it. Also, you know, it occurred to me during our conversation that you know the conventional wisdom of being late and small late to the the maturity of business education and small and a big research university that is effectively a juggernaut in health sciences um, might have sounded like a disadvantage or the conventional wisdom might be. But in fact, 
you know, everything he talked about was really the advantages of being new, being on the cutting edge in terms of practicing what you preach and and not only uh, talking the talk, but walking the walk in terms of interdisciplinarity. Yeah. And the other thing is it sounded so much like the other the other schools, particularly those three health services schools, have really embraced the Cary School as opposed to say, look, you know, you're a newbie and we're the big 800-pound gorilla in the room, so leave us alone. We've been here for a long, long time. No, they didn't do that at all. And I think that's just been brilliant on the part of Johns Hopkins and Total as a university. It's been great. Yeah, I would whisper that, in fact, leadership also matters. Yes. And it's not just it's not just the theoretical value of you know having one university, it's the way those values are then deployed. And I am you know quite sure from the way Alex comports himself that um, he and his predecessor, Bernie Ferrari, did a lot across the bridge to to build collegiality at the you know division to division level. Yeah, they're the kind of guys, both of them, and, and I, I knew Bernie as well. Those, those, those are both the kind of guys that are going to be able to build collegiality just by virtue of the way they purport, conduct, comport themselves. I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah, really delightful to see the successes they're having. Really happy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.